The will of God is the word of God. It's that simple. The will of God is the word of God. Somebody comes to me and says, Justin, I want to know what the will of God is. Read the word of God. Say, I, I want a sign or I, I want to hear God speak audibly out loud. Then read the Bible out loud. And you will hear the Lord speak to you. The word of God is the will of God. And if I could sum up these three verses this morning, I'd sum them up with a simple phrase, walk in wisdom. Walk in wisdom. Wisdom is not something that we are naturally born with. As a matter of fact, the scripture teaches us that foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The reason that we are born foolish is very simple. It's because we're born without knowledge. We simply just don't have any knowledge when we're born. We're here. And, and, and the thing is, we don't know what hot is. And so what do we end up doing? We end up touching things that are hot because we don't know and we don't understand what hot is. And in a child, we end up putting things in our mouth because we don't know and we don't understand that we shouldn't put those things in our mouth. The text this morning is encouraging us but also commanding us to walk in wisdom. And if we are to walk in wisdom... There's some things that we have to acquire to actually have wisdom to walk in. I want to read from Proverbs chapter 2, 6, and then I want to read also Proverbs 9, 6, immediately following. So in the text here of Ephesians, he's saying you need to come away from foolishness. Don't walk in foolishness, but you need to walk in wisdom. Set aside the foolishness of the world to attain God's wisdom. And I want you to listen to Proverbs 2, 6. He says, For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. There's three words here that go together. Knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. 400 years, the Greeks knew and understood this before Christ. They called it grammar, logic, and rhetoric. The scripture had spoken years before about this trivium knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. Listen to the text again, Proverbs 2 6 For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. Here's what comes from his mouth. So out of the mouth of God comes knowledge. And wisdom. And then Proverbs 9 10, he says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. When we begin to read God's word, we begin to know who he is, and this knowledge of the holy. And when we say holy, that means God is separate and distinct from us, that he's not like us, he's consecrated. Uh, it's not like God is like us a little bit bigger and a little bit better, he is not like us at all. It's just, we go to God's Word and we see this. A few weeks ago, uh, the gentleman preached uh, from Isaiah chapter 6. We see that God is holy. He was not like those seraphim. 
And they're calling out that God is holy, holy, holy. So he says this, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So we go to God's word. This is his mouth. This is his mouthpiece. He speaks to us. He teaches us who he is. And from the knowledge of the holy comes understanding. Now think of it like this. You've got to have knowledge or attain knowledge to gain understanding. And then from gaining understanding, you begin to apply what you've begun to understood in your life. And that's wisdom. Think of it like a puzzle. And, and you take a little piece of the puzzle and you're kind of looking at this small piece. And it, it's, it's blue and it looks like there's a little cloud and maybe one little corner of it. But you're not sure and you see something that might look like a, a duck's beak and a, maybe a little bit of a wing. And, and you're looking at that little piece of the puzzle. But until another piece comes with it. You don't get to see more of a bigger picture. And then, but you got a little knowledge in this piece, and you got a little knowledge in this piece, but the understanding comes when you begin to put those things together. Then you begin to understand, oh, there's a bigger picture here. There's more to this than I can actually see. And then you begin to see, and then the wisdom is applied as you begin to understand. So we must obtain knowledge, and then... We go from obtaining knowledge to understanding the truths by putting them together in a Christian worldview. And then we begin to apply with wisdom. Now, let me give you a little bit of advice when it comes to seeking after knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. You can go about this the wrong way. The scripture teaches us that knowledge puffs up. In other words, makes people proud. And I tell you, uh, you take, I've seen many young men do this. They go and they read a few books and they think they know everything. They, do, they get a hold of a few books and they, they think they know everything. And then, God forbid, they go on YouTube <laughs> and watch a few videos. And, and the next thing you know, knowledge puffs up and they're strutting around like a big Tom Turkey on a spring morning. And they're just all blowed up. Well, knowledge puffs up. The Greeks sought after wisdom. And this is what Paul said to the church at Corinth, which was highly influenced by the Greek culture. He says, for the Jews seek after a sign, but the Greeks seek after wisdom. He said, but we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Our knowledge and understanding and our wisdom must be settled upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he lays a cornerstone for us to build knowledge, understanding, and wisdom on that comes from him. And there's no room for boasting. Not in your salvation, nor in your knowledge, because you didn't come up with it. Nor in your understanding, because it's not yours. Nor in your wisdom, because it's not yours either. You've attained it from him. The truth is, 
If somebody begins to study and read and all these different aspects and they begin to be puffed up, they're really just manifesting the fact that they know nothing. Because what ends up happening, the more you dive into God's Word, the more your knowledge and understanding is wisdom is based upon His Word, the more you come to know, the more you realize you know nothing. And it brings forth a humility, not a pride. It was Watchman Nee. <clears throat> Years ago, I read a book that he wrote. It's called Sit, Walk, Stand. And it was kind of a, a spiritualized exposition, if that's even a phrase that can be used. That's almost like an oxymoron. But it's like a spiritualized exposition of the book of Ephesians. And it was a really good book, to be honest. But he broke down the book of Ephesians in three ways. It was sit, walk, and stand. Chapter 1, we learn to sit in heavenly places. And then we begin to learn to walk in the light and walk in love and walk in wisdom. And then by the time you get to Ephesians chapter 6, you've come to the place where you stand. You put on the whole armor of God and you learn to stand. But it comes with learning to sit first. You sit at the Lord's feet, you learn from Him, then you begin to learn to walk with Him, and then rain, sleet, snow, hell, or high water, you learn to stand on the rock. I can tell you this morning, and I'm absolutely confident you've heard this before through the Ephesians series, but the book of Ephesians is really split down the middle. And when I say split down the middle, I'm talking about the first three chapters and the last three chapters. The first three chapters, we would say, is orthodoxy. The last three chapters is orthopraxy. The first three chapters is theological. The last three chapters is practical. Remember, it's the knowledge of the holy. That's the first three chapters. First three, theological. Last three, practical. Then it goes, we could say it like this. The first three chapters is indicatives. The last three chapters is imperatives. The first three ch chapters is truths you should believe. The last three chapters of the book of Ephesians is how you should behave. Because what we believe determines the way we behave. So I want us to go back into the first chapter of the book of Ephesians. And I want to just walk through some truths real quick that you've already covered. And I'm going to kind of summarize these truths. And then we're going to jump into the last three chapters. And we're going to just see of a one way that we apply these truths, because what we have in the verses I've read this morning is kind of a transitional period going from the theological to the practical. So I want you to look with me, verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. You could sum this up with the word election. And then we're going to see predestination and adoption. Let me just say this. It seems to me that anytime somebody wants to throw around the word election or predestination, there's all kinds of labels that want to go with it. How about we forget all labels and we just embrace what the Bible says? Amen? Amen. Amen. So what you've got is you've got election. 
in verses 3 and 4. And listen to these words. He says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, just as he hath chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame, before him in love. This is election. God chose you. When? Before the foundation of the world. He chose you. Then he goes on into predestination. This is summations of these verses here. Predestination and adoption. Ephesians 1, 5 and 6. Having predestined us to the adoption as sons by Jesus Christ himself according to the good pleasure of his will to the praise of the, the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved predestination and adoption when it comes to adoption who chooses who the parents choose the child he chose you, predetermined to choose you. This is what we call Trinitarian salvation. You'll find it in the first four verses of 1 Peter. Covenant theology. That the Father put together a plan. The Son made the purchase of the plan. And the Spirit worked throughout time and matter in history to make the plan come together. This is predestination and adoption. And then you see in verse 7, you see redemption. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Redemption, it's a, it's a purchasing back of what has been taken. And then the fall of Adam, we all sinned with Adam. But in Jesus Christ, this last Adam, in his life, he substitutes for our life. And in this, he fulfills the law. He keeps the law. He's the only one that could. And then in his death, he makes purchase and payment to purchase us out of the slave market of sin. We have redemption through his blood. Here's this life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. And then you have reprobation. And regeneration. Look with me, chapter 2. Reprobation and regeneration. I'll tell you, this is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. And I want you to listen to this. And you, he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit of who now works in the sons of disobedience, in whom also we all had our conduct ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come that he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in the kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Reprobation, 
and also regeneration. You say reprobation. How would you get reprobation out of that? You were dead in trespasses and sin. You say, well, I wasn't no reprobate. Oh, yes, you was. You may not have been given over to your reprobation. Romans chapter 1, God gave them over to the lust of their own hearts, to the son of their own bodies. Then he goes on a little further and he says, God gave them over to the the lust of their own hearts. And then he goes into a a sexual revolution, then a homosexual revolution. Then he says, after this, God gave them over to reprobation. We were all born reprobates. We might not have been given over to it, though. In other words, let me say it like this. We were all born dead, just some of us was a little more rotten than others. (laughs) That's a fact. We were all born dead. Some of us was like uh, Jairus' daughter. You know, she's been dead for a little while. But then you got old Lazarus, John chapter 11, and behold, he's stinking. We were all dead, folks. All dead. We were all born totally and pervasively depraved. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. Had no life within us. Could not produce life. And while we were yet dead, he made us alive. He made us alive. And what did he do? He regenerated us. By the power of his spirit and the power of his word, he made us alive. And he changed the course that we were walking on when he did this. And then by the time you get into Ephesians chapter 2 verse 8, we're going into salvation. Now, there's some of these words are intertwined. So within this, you've got salvation. But what's also intertwined within these is redemption. It's just another way of saying salvation. Ephesians 2.8, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. We see salvation. And then we see reconciliation. Ephesians 2.11-13. Therefore remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh who were called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands that At the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's reconciliation. Now, do you see these doctrinal truths that are all connected here in chapter 1 and chapter 2? Theology orthodoxy, things that we should believe. And then by the time you get into Ephesians chapter 5 and you're going through this transition, he's saying, walk in wisdom. Walk in love. Well, walk in what wisdom? Walk in what love? In light of everything I've said in chapters 1, 2, and 3 leading up to this point, now you need to walk in the same Wisdom that God has in the same love that God has. And what's he saying? I'm encouraging you and commanding you in these verses to do so. Now I only give you a few things to imagine. Because we're going to transition here from the theological to the practical. Because what's coming up 
In Ephesians chapter 5, there'll be an entire series that'll be preached on it. It'll be on marriage. I want to cover just a few things leading into that. Imagine with me just for a minute, a young man, he's grew up in church all of his life, and he's, he's going to get married. And uh, he's read some of the Bible. Let's say he's played leapfrog through the Bible. He's not read it line for line, precept upon precept. And he's not uh, studied it here a little and there a little. But he just kind of played leapfrog and he knows some verses and, and he wants to use them in his life. And he kind of goes around. He's been, he's grew up in a church that believes that you could lose your salvation. That Christ's love is conditional. And then he gets married. And in this marriage... He is believed and embraced conditional love of Christ. And then he reads Ephesians chapter 5. And he says, look here, husbands, love your wives even as Christ loved the church. And he just takes it right there. Remember, I told you this guy plays leapfrog through the Bible. And he, and he says that, but... His, his wife is messed up. And he believes in conditional love of God and conditional love of Christ. And now she don't meet all the conditions that he's placed on her. And in his mind and in his conscience, he's free to go. You see how that works? Don't think for one second that what you believe doesn't determine the way you behave. But I want to give you another example. Imagine a man who he knows and understands Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3. And he gets married. And in this marriage, he takes his wedding vows very serious. And he's looking and he's saying, you know what? From this day forward, to have and to hold... He's looking at these vows and for better or for worse, for richer or for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And he understands that this is not only a covenant between him and his wife, but a covenant between him and God. And he has chosen, he has elected from the absolute foundation of their marriage that he's going to see it through to the end. Because when he looks at Ephesians chapter 1, he sees that God chose himself a bride from the foundation of the world. And within this, he's going to see it through to the end. And he sees election here. And he sees this electing love. And he says, I elect, I choose to see my marriage through from the beginning to the end. And within this, he sees predestination, how God has predetermined certain things. And in this, he begins to look at his marriage through the light of predestination. And he begins to see this. And he says, you know what? I'm going to sit, walk, 
and stand. I have predetermined that I am going to sit on God's word and I'm going to rest in what he has said. And I, I have predetermined that I am going to walk with the Lord in his light, in his wisdom, and in his love throughout the entirety of this marriage. And I'm predetermined that coming snow, hell, or high water, that I'm going to stand with the Lord and I'm going to fight for my marriage all the way through. And he does this based upon what he believes concerning Ephesians chapter 1. And then he goes on and his marriage looks like it's dead at some point. And in the midst of this, he says it, it's dead, and then it, he remembers Ephesians chapter 2, how he used to be dead in his trespasses and sin, and how God made him alive. And he says, you know what? If God can raise me from the dead, he can raise our marriage from the dead also. And then he sees within his marriage that things are irreconcilable. Oh, man, it just looks like there's no hope. And then he remembers Ephesians chapter 2. And he sees how God has reconciled enemies to himself. He sees how God has reconciled through Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection and saved men, reconciling them unto himself. And not only this, but that he reconciles Jew and Gentile together. And the enmity that was between, he breaks down the barrier wall of hostility. You ever had a barrier wall of hostility in your home? It's been there, ain't it? He's able to break that down. Listen, if the Lord Jesus can reconcile the lion and the lamb, and they lay down together, he can reconcile a marriage. Do you see how what we believe determines the way we behave? And this is him saying, walk in wisdom. In light of what we have here, walk in wisdom. Of what you've learned in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, walk in this. Now, apply these things, the knowledge of the holy, to your life. Let me say this in closing. Here's this what I call this morning a little obscure verse right in the middle of 15 and 17. It's verse 16. Look at it with me. He says, redeeming the time because the days are evil. If we walk according to the pattern of this world, I want to tell you there is no hope in that sense that we do not and must turn to the Lord Jesus Christ as our cornerstone. The days are evil. It's all around you. This evil is all around you. He says in the midst of this, redeem the time. One of the major distinctions between a fool and a wise man is the fool does not see. He does not see the correlation or the connection or the causation between what he does today and how it affects him tomorrow. He does not see the causation between the decision that he makes right now and how it affects him 10 minutes from now, 10 days from now, 
10 months from now and 10 years from now. He, he don't see it, but the wise man sees exactly where he's at, and it's time for him to redeem the time. I'll never forget sitting with a guy in Cock County several years ago, and he's going on and on and on about his marriage. And I went through the gospel over and over and over with this guy. And he's a businessman. And I remember saying to him, listen, man, in your business, do you not make 30, 60, and 90-day plans? Oh, yeah, he says. Do you not make plans of one-year plans, three-year plans, five-year plans, 10-year plans, and you're working toward these things? Oh, yeah. I said, let me ask you something. If you continue going the direction you're going right now in your marriage, where will it be in five years? Gives us something to think about. Redeeming the time. James said concerning our time and our lives on earth that it's, it's like a vapor. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. Yesterday I was seven, today I'm 37, tomorrow I'll be 67, I'm gone. Redeem the time. How do you begin to redeem the time? You get settled and rooted there in Ephesians 1 through 3. And then you begin to walk out those truths 4, 5, and 6. I'd ask you this morning, how are you spending your time? Renewing your mind? Or walking to the course of this world. I'd ask you this morning. To stand with me as we close. I'd encourage you with the Apostle Paul. And the Lord's word. To walk not as fools. But as wise. I'd encourage you this morning. To redeem the time. Because the days are evil. I encourage you this morning to seek after the Lord while he may be found. You may be a believer here this morning. God's word has penetrated your heart. You may want some time to pray or seek counsel this morning. You are more than welcome to go to any of the elders here at the church. You can come to myself or you can go to any of the counselors that are here. You may be lost this morning, and the Lord has touched your heart. So whether it be sanctification or salvation, we should always assemble together to seek the Lord. We're going to go to the Lord in prayer. And if you need salvation, you need to repent of your sins. You need to turn away from yourself and your sin and turn to Jesus Christ. His life, death, and resurrection being so totally sufficient for your sins. And he said this, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That if you believe in your heart that God raised Christ from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, that you shall be saved. I can't give you those words to get in your heart, but if they're in your heart, they'll come out of your mouth. I'd ask you to seek the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we close this service out, we thank you for your word. And Father, I ask, Lord, that your word not just uh, be here, that come off of my lips, and fall on deaf ears. But Father, I ask you, Lord, that we take your word serious. I ask, Lord, that it convict 
in lives that need to be convicted. And Lord, I also encourage those that need to be comforted. Father, I ask you, Lord, in the light of the gospel, that you have your will and your way this day, and that we would conform our lives for the sake of your Son to his will. And we ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake we pray. Amen.